Hello and welcome to the Knowledge Without College podcast. This is your host, Patrick Butler. And today I have an incredible conversation to share with you. This time I had the opportunity to speak with Brian Murrah Rescue. Uh, Brian is a New York Times bestselling author of the incredible new book called The Immortality Key, The Secret History of the Religion with No Name. He's also a practicing attorney uh, and has done some incredible work in this space, uh, which I learned now is called archaeochemistry. It's uh, super interesting, uh, amazing to hear about the connections between religion, psychedelics, and the ancient world. Uh, I had a really great time talking to Brian. I highly encourage you to check out his work and this book. It's all super interesting stuff, and I know you're going to really enjoy this conversation. So please, without further delay, Enjoy this episode with Brian Murrah Rescue. Hello, Brian. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's a real honor to have you on the show. Thanks for having me, man. So for the audience out there who maybe is not familiar with your work just yet, would you mind telling them a little bit about your background and you know how you got to this point doing what you do? Uh, I'm a suburban soccer dad, which doesn't tell you anything important. Um, I'm a father of two beautiful daughters, happily married to my wonderful wife. We're, we're normally based in Washington, D.C., uh, and where I'm a practicing attorney. But for nights and weekends over the past 12 years, I took it upon myself to try and, and piece together one of the best kept secrets in history. Uh, this is how Houston Smith, one of the greatest religious scholars of the 20th century, uh, it's what he referred to uh, Eleusis as, uh, which is that this ancient spiritual capital uh, that, that called to everybody from Plato to Marcus Aurelius, and there was uh, a magic potion, for lack of a better word. There was a sacrament involved in antiquity, and it's the same kind of sacrament uh, that may have made its way into early Christianity. So altogether, Houston said this is one of the best kept secrets because uh, we don't have much information about these ancient mysteries, hints and clues here and there. Uh, so I started poking around the old world and traveled to Greece and Germany and Spain and France and Italy and spent some time in the Vatican to see if I could dredge up some some good info. So to, to take a step back, I'm so curious how you know, how you do both of these things and how you really dove deep into this from the perspective of an attorney, you know, you'd think like an archaeologist or, you know, a journalist or something like that might get deep involved in this sort of, uh, you know, this realm of ancient, uh, you know, religious history. What, what was it for you? Where, where is that, you know, where's that connection there? Right. Well, th that's why I mentioned my first job as being a father, which is, which True. is my real job. But when my, when my first daughter was born, um, all these ideas, uh, that I'd had and all these notes uh, started to come down on, onto paper about six or seven years ago. Because uh, as all new parents know, you're, you're kind of, it was the pre-quarantine quarantine. We were on lockdown with, with the baby for a while. And it was a good moment to, to contemplate uh, the kinds of things that I was studying when I was like 18 or 15. So I, I studied Latin and Greek when I was in high school. 
and then was recruited to college uh, to continue studying Latin, Greek, and Sanskrit. And I picked up some Arabic and some modern languages. Uh, and you know, you you read a bunch of stuff that's interesting, but the one thing that's that stood out to me were these mysteries, the the, the mysteries of Eleusis, for example, or the mysteries of Dionysus, the Greek god of wine and ecstasy. Uh, and they're somewhat similar to, to the Christian mysteries. And I write a lot about that. You know, um, we don't have the best records from 2000 years ago, 2,500 years ago. So there's lots of speculation and lots of conjecture for what was going on uh, at that time in the world. I mean, these real culturally transformative events. Uh, so I had the, you know, the training in languages to approach this kind of journalistically and kind of legally, which is nothing more than just finding your expert witnesses and talking to people who are smarter than me and trying to put all these pieces together. If it's one thing the legal education gave me, it was that. Well, it's really interesting to think, I mean, in my mind, if you have that experience with all those languages, that gives you a new way of thinking also, you know, it's sort of, you can sort of see how different cultures think differently because of the way their language operates. And I wonder, you know, just digging into these mysteries, there's already so much missing. It's, it's like trying to find the dog that didn't bark and trying to see, you know, where there's some sort of correlations. And so, um, you know, it's pretty amazing uh, skill stack that you have there to be able to even like approach this situation. It's pretty impressive in my mind. Cool. I'll, I'll give you one quick example. I mean, uh, sure. you know, la language does matter. And I think it's important to point out why that's the case. I mean, so we know the New Testament is written in Greek, for example. It's written, it's not written in Hebrew, it's written in Greek to Greek speakers. And, you know, dealing with that language in the original language is a bit different than reading it in English or other modern languages. And at some point when I was a teenager, you know, picking up the New Testament in one hand and looking at all the other great literature that came from Athens on the other, like Homer and Plato and Pindar and Sophocles, uh, you know, you just hold it side by side. It's the same language. And so I always, I mean, almost from the, the beginning, I had this question uh, about, about the New Testament and about Jesus and about all these mysteries. And maybe we were missing something. And the language for me was a, was a portal to that, even as a, as a young man. So one concrete example, uh, you know, the, the theories that I pursue in, in my book, The Immortality Key, is the idea that there were drugs and that there was a drug sacrament used in antiquity, both among the Greeks and the early Christians and other civilizations too, obviously, but I focus on the Greeks and the Christians as kind of the foundation of Western civilization. Uh, and so what I came across in the course of research is that there were lots of potions and beers and wine rolling around the ancient world, but they weren't the, the beverages that we think of uh, today. Uh, and so one concrete example is that the word for alcohol that we use doesn't come from Greek and Latin. So the, there was no concept of that in the Greco-Roman world. I mean, they had, they had a word for wine, obviously, uh, like a common word, oinos. Uh, but the, another term they used to describe wine was pharmakon, which as you can hear in, in the word is where we get pharmacy and pharmaceutical. Uh, so the idea of drug, I mean, they referred to wine as a drug because wine was like this vehicle uh, for, for spiking it with different kinds of plants and herbs and toxins, whether for medicinal use or for you know, deeply religious spiritual use, which begs a giant question, uh, what kind of Eucharist, what kind of holy wine was being passed around in early Christianity? Yeah, it's, it's amazing to think because I feel like there's so much knowledge that was lost in that time. Whereas, you know, we oftentimes reflect back on antiquity thinking that we have, you know, a larger understanding of nature, the world around us. And it seems like, you know, there's there's so much that we don't know about what they did know. 
and that this is something that, you know, it's, we have to speculate and try to guess, you know, what level of understanding that they have of the natural world at that time and uh, the different things uh, or, you know, things they were consuming, I guess you could say. Uh, yeah, and, and we're, we're still learning all, all the time. A colleague of mine at MIT, who I profile in the book, Andrew Coe, says that despite all the ancient literature that we have, we've only identified about 20% of the species that are referenced in some of these texts. Like wow. even, even, even basic things like Laurel, which, which shows up a lot at the Oracle of Delphi, for example, and, uh, or Ivy, which is described very differently in antiquity as having these like hallucinogenic properties. I mean, when they say Ivy, we don't know what they're talking about. Uh, you know, what was Greek and Roman ivy, the same thing that, that we have today. Uh, so, you know, by and large, we don't really have a, a pristine idea of what they were talking about. And there are all these long books uh, that remain untranslated into English, like Galen, who was the personal physician to Marcus Aurelius. He wrote all these books on drugs and compounds and poisons, and it hasn't been translated to English. Uh, just thousands and thousands of lines of Greek. Uh, I mean, so even if you're a professional classicist, there are these gaps um, in the scholarship that, that we still need to fill. And so the only reason I say all that is because it allows us to you know, go on this, on this grail hunt, really. For, for some of these, these ancient mysteries and whether or not drugs were a part of it is an open question, but it's a question worth asking. And I think you, you raise a really interesting point there, which I think I know for myself, like uh, I, you don't realize how much we don't know. And so maybe you could shed some light on like what this field looks like. What's like a lay of the land? Because I feel like for many people, they assume that we know everything that we could know about the ancients. We have all the texts, we have all the tablets, we have everything that we have unearthed and that people have gone through them rigorously. And that, you know, we kind of, you know, put bookends on all that we know about the ancient worlds. Could you shed some light on maybe like what we don't know? I can, I can put a number on it. Uh, and this is, this, is not, this is not my number, but I quote it and I cite it in the book. We think that only about 1% of the literature that was produced in antiquity has survived. I mean, so entire disciplines uh, of, of, of classics, for example, are dedicated to 1% of the total output of the ancient world. The um, uh, Ezra Pound once said uh, that all we have from antiquity are, are two gross of broken statues and a few thousand battered books. And, and, and in my book, I say it's like having a million piece jigsaw puzzle and we have a few hundred or a few thousand dusty pieces and we have no idea how to put it together. I mean, it's, it's an overstatement, but I mean, there really are giant gaps there. Um, to put more numbers on it, uh, if you think of some of the most famous playwrights of antiquity, Euripides, we only have 19 of the 79 plays that he wrote. Aeschylus, seven of 99. Uh, Sophocles, seven of about 120, uh, you know, so uh, this is the kind of stuff that I was learning as, as an undergrad and, you know, it raises big questions. You don't have to be a historian to realize that there are major gaps in our understanding. Well, it's even more startling when you say how much of it isn't, you know, we have, we have the records or we have the information, but it's not translated into English. So it's really, you know, there's a whole portion of the population that's not even touching it. Uh, that, but most classicists either. I mean, even even the professionals. Uh, when yeah. when it comes when it when it comes to, I mean, so there are a few writers um, who who do dedicate lots of books to drugs. And Dioscorides is one of them. I mentioned him um, in in my in my book and interviews. Uh, he's writing in the first century A.D. at the exact same time as the Gospels, and he has all these formulas and recipes for spiking wine with different things. And then a couple centuries later, you have Galen. Uh, who I mentioned, and he has like uh, like 22 volumes 
of of uh, uh, of this literature of like a thousand pages per volume. I mean, so there's like 40 or 50 of Homer's Iliads in this one German edition of all of wow. Kalin's work. It's just this massive amount of pharmacology and drug lore that we're largely ignorant about, even, even the professionals. So for you, where was that first string that you started to pull to get to this idea of a Lucis? And- uh, good, good question. So uh, I follow, again, very little of this is like, was my idea. It was just me kind of sitting back somewhat like removed from the academy and removed from professional scholarship. I mean, I, I wanted to be a priest and I wanted to be a classics professor when I was 21 and I went to law school instead. And because of that, you know, I'm always like an outsider looking in and, and um, you know, the way that academia is set up, it's it's tough to go to one place and get answers. And so my book, if anything, is is like this multidisciplinary search, uh, you know, of, of everything that exists uh, around this topic. So, you know, I, I spend time talking to biblical scholars uh, and classicists and historians and linguists, but I spend a lot of time talking to scientists, you know, like archaeochemists and botanists and neuroscientists and psychopharmacologists. And I think only by combining those worlds can we get anywhere? And that was like the aha moment for me when I started reading about psilocybin uh, and these early experiments with the, the active compound and magic mushrooms coming out of Johns Hopkins. Uh, and I eventually got in touch with those psychopharmacologists because the kind of results they were getting to me were crazy. Like mm-hmm. from a single dose of psilocybin, people were walking away with like a God experience or this deeply mystical experience that they said was among the most meaningful in their life. Uh, this was like for me in like 2007, 2008. And now even, you know, 12 years, 13 years later, uh, that figure is 75% if you ask the teens at Hopkins. So three and four people will walk away from one dose of this drug um, transformed, one of the most meaningful in their lives. And the, the light bulb moment for me was if that's happening now with such repeatability, maybe it was happening. Maybe there was some kind of technology in the past, not, not psilocybin, but I mean, if you look to the ancient mysteries as anything, they, these were uh, machines. These were the engineered machines for transforming humans into gods. So, so what do you mean by an engineered machine? I mean, it was a very wrought institution. It was very, uh, you know, well-established. Is that what you're describing? Yeah, they were, and, and well-coordinated, Eleusis. So let me, let me describe Eleusis just quickly. Please. Um, it survives for almost 2,000 years, from about 1500 BC to the 4th century AD, when it's obliterated under the Christianized Roman Empire, uh, which is to say it survives about as long as, as we've had Christianity. And why, why is that? Uh, again, we don't know the answer because nothing was written down. There was no doctrine, no dogma. It was an oral tradition uh, surrounded by these, these hereditary priesthoods and priestesses who organized everything there. And it was a very organized event that was administered by the Greek state, even at some point in classical antiquity, uh, where these initiates would make a pilgrimage from Athens up to Eleusis, 13 miles to its northwest. And we don't know the exact sequence of events, but at some point they drink a potion called the Kukion, which was made of barley, water, and mint. And they have this vision, almost universally, there's attested some kind of vision, this beatific vision of, of the goddesses, Demeter and Persephone. And, and at some point they achieve immortality. They say that only those who have seen or witnessed what happened inside Demeter's temple would have life after death. It was only them and, and nobody else. Uh, and it's the same kind of promise that you hear with Jesus a bit later, whoever drinks 
the sacrament, whoever drinks his blood and feasts on its flesh, it's only those who have immortality. Uh, it's pretty, it's actually, it's pretty clear in the sixth chapter of John that there's, there's a formula there for uh, entering the kingdom of heaven. Uh, and so, you know, we don't know all the details, but that, that's essentially what, what Eleusis was. That's, it's amazing to consider the idea of the Greek state even, uh, you know, orchestrating some of this. And when you consider the way that, you know, any talk of that today would be absolutely, you know, it'd be blasphemy. It'd be crazy to think of like a, a nation sort of mandating an experience like that. Um, it's even more, you know, it's, it's so interesting to me to think about what was lost through the translations through time. Uh, you know, how, what is the watered down version of religion that we are experiencing today amongst the organized religions? Um, cause I think what's interesting when you look at so many different religions across the board, there's so many common threads and things that make them similar to each other. Uh, and it's like, why is that sort of like a universal experience? And what you're describing is that in antiquity, there was sort of this universal experience that has more, uh, a little bit more to it, a little bit more of a real experience to it than, than maybe what we're experiencing today. That's, that's the key. And in fact, I think that that's part of the reason I call my book, The Immortality Key. It's not, it's not about drugs per se. Um, although, you know, obviously it's, it's a whole book exploring this psychedelic hypothesis and whether these drugs were available and consumed by our ancestors. But I mean, the real, the real question is, is why, why did that matter? And why does it matter to people in the Johns Hopkins and NYU experiments today? Uh, it's, it has something to do with experience. I mean, that, that's what religion is. Um, Brother David Steindl Rosh, this Benedictine monk, I quote in my intro, talks a lot about this tension between mysticism and bureaucracy, that, that it's, the, it's the lived experience that gives birth to this stuff in the first place. Uh, and it's that kind of lived experience that, that the Greeks seem to have engineered into this 2000 year long tradition where uh, they experience something. In fact, Aristotle about Eleusis says that the initiates did not go there to learn something. And he uses the word mathein, where we get the uh, mathematics from. He says they went there to pathein, to experience, to suffer something, uh, something visceral that, that changes you forever. It seems to be what's happening today. It could be something that's been happening across time. Yeah, it's, and uh, I'm curious about how this institution could be something that was so critical to, you know, you'd think society, if all these, uh, you know, really important people or uh, some of the most, uh, you know, amazing historical figures we can think of have all, you know, been involved in something like this. How does something like that fade away? And how is there not sort of something, you know, how is there not like a vacuum to, you know, like something to fill that up? Right. So the, 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 the obvious um, scapegoat would be the, the Christianized Roman Empire, right? Um, I, think, I think that's too easy of an answer, but it's, it's part of the answer. I mean, we know the world was changing in the fourth century AD. And we know that after Constantine, this illegal religion, Christianity, which was an illegal cult, for you know, the better part of 300 years. Uh, it's decriminalized and it's gaining this new status and under, uh, by the late fourth century, it's, it's legal and it was on a path to become the world's biggest religion. And that's difficult to do with all these pagan institutions. So there were, there were different attempts across the fourth and fifth centuries uh, to um, eliminate a lot of these earlier traditions. Uh, you know, getting rid of some of the books, raising the temples, um, and, uh, you know, uh, making illegal nocturnal celebrations like Eleusis. Uh, but it's funny, in the literature of the time, you see this really interesting tension between the Christian and the pagan worlds. And in, in my book, I talk about 
this another initiate, Praetextatus, who's recorded in the literature as, as telling the Roman emperor that if you kill Eleusis, you're going to kill us. That, that to kill this experience at the, the, the centerpiece of Greek civilization, if you get rid of this, you're, you're going to kill us. You're going to kill the planet. There was some idea that Eleusis was bound up with the notion of, of, of life itself. And we don't know really how to explain that. But, you know, it's, it's this, this legend that, that survives for, for centuries. It's, I mean, it's just like, still, I'm sort of stuck on the point of like, how do we get past something where this was so instrumental? You know, if you look back, if we, if it really had this sort of impact that you would think it would have, even when you compare it to like the way people today uh, talk about psychedelic experience, uh, it has that level of impact. It would have certainly have some, you'd certainly be able, certainly be able to give it credit for much of the, you know, development, maybe the structure, maybe the, uh, you know, the growth of Western civilization. It's like, how does that disappear for, you know, over a thousand years and we still, you know, carried on today? Uh, I, I asked that question myself. I mean, and there, there's lots of speculation about what happens to these pagan traditions. You know, I, clearly they, they don't disappear in the fourth. Some of these more heretical Christian groups, what they call the Gnostics, which comes, comes from the Greek to know. And again, this idea of direct experience of the divine, um, they don't really survive in the literature much past the fourth century. It's, it's largely stamped out uh, by the church fathers. Um, I mean, how else do we explain it? That, you know, these are oral traditions, right? These are secret traditions, secret sacraments, hidden ingredients, lost formulas and recipes. That stuff is gonna disappear under the weight of its own secrecy at some point. I mean, without a place like Eleusis to, to, to hold this tradition together, without, a, without an axis and a brick and mortar center to, um, to nucleate it, I mean, eventually there's gonna be a loss of generational knowledge. I mean, so the power structure of the Roman empire, the Christianized Roman empire was certainly part of it, but then, you know, what happened to, the, to these sacraments? Did, did they bleed out into pagan traditions that went underground? I read a lot about the witches and, you know, um, folklore that could have escaped into the woods and mountains uh, and forests of Italy. That's, it's, it's a very distinct possibility. Um, on the other hand, there was, you know, this syncretic blend of Christianity and paganism that didn't really disappear. Uh, I talk about Ramsey McMullen from Yale, his scholarship that uh, these incubation temples and, and these weird hybrids existed all the way through like the 10th century AD. Uh, you know, paganism didn't just disappear overnight. So while, while the temples may have gone, some of that knowledge remained, I think, until the Inquisition, at which point it's largely game over. Uh, a lot of this was really just uprooted quite, quite literally, you know, the, the sacred pharmacopoeia doesn't survive much past the inquisition. Yeah. So you're saying that it likely went, you know, rather than being mainstream went underground for quite some time before the inquisition. And, and what would, what would that event have? That's interesting in and of itself to think that, you know, even with this sort of perpetual, uh, you know, tradition or experience that's still rooted in, in, many people's, you know, experiences there, you know, as the Western world is developing, how that, you know, still is like, what, what is the purpose of killing it? What is the purpose of, uh, of driving it out? So it depends who you ask. I mean, yeah. there, I, I, quote, I quote a book uh, in, in, in mine by Catherine Nixie called The Darkening Age. And again, she, she lays a lot of the blame at, at, at the Christians or the Christianized Roman Empire. It was, it was the mixture of, of church and state 
that wasn't entirely separate the way it is today, if it is separate today. Uh, and, uh, you know, that, 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 that plays a, a big role in, um, in favoring one religion over the other. I mean, you know, Constantine, what Constantine had going eventually results in the, you know, uh, the, the whole empire transforming in, in, in pretty rapid succession uh, in the fourth and fifth centuries. Um, they, they had the power of uh, organization and bureaucracy behind them, both in the Eastern and Western parts of uh, the fallen Roman Empire. It, um, it carries on. And then you have folks like Charlemagne thereafter. And again, this, this uneasy relationship between the monarchs and the popes, I mean, it's there for a long time, right? Uh, the, there, there was a significant power structure behind one religion over the other. I think it's that simple. Interesting. Do you, do you imagine this, uh, you know, there's sort of this institution that once existed for such a long period of time. And, you know, there's that saying history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes, you know, do you, do you imagine this sort of same institutions sort are of reemerging, reemerging in the modern world? Uh, like a psychedelic institution? Sure. Yeah. Something, uh, something like a Lucis. It's well, I mean, we're, we, we sit at an interesting moment right now. Uh, so uh, a colleague of mine has said that what happened two weeks ago in Oregon, for example, is literally the most significant reform to the nation's failed drug policies in a generation. And, and it's hard to dispute that. I mean, all drugs were just decriminalized in, in Oregon and psilocybin is being set up uh, regulatory, uh, in this regulatory process uh, for therapeutics, which will open in two years. And it, it'll be the first jurisdiction in the world with regulated psilocybin, so not just decriminalized. Uh, so, I mean, we're, we're living real time in the, the collapse of the war on drugs, uh, which was a pretty silly war to begin with. Uh, so if you think whether there's a legal structure for that to happen, it's, it seems to be emerging and Oregon will likely just be a model for other states and eventually maybe the federal government getting on board. I mean, the FDA will probably be approving psilocybin uh, at the federal level for like clinical application. So depression, anxiety, end of life distress sometime in the next maybe five years. I mean, so the mental health industry is, is looking to be revolutionized by things like, like psilocybin. Uh, now what happens after that? It's, you know, is there a new elusis coming along? Is, the, is there a new heretical church coming along? Uh, you know, there are Christians today who use a psychedelic sacrament. In Brazil, there's the Santo Daime tradition. Oh. And in, even amongst the Native American church, which has some Christian elements to it uh, with, with Beote. I mean, this, this stuff is there today with the, the support of the state, like you had with Athens and Eleusis. I don't know. It's, it's going to be really interesting to see what happens in 10 years. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, you said it's, it's the biggest change in a generation in drug policy. It sounds more like the biggest change since, you know, uh, you know, for, for hundreds of years, you know, in this direction where the state could sort of re-embrace uh, something like this. And yeah, I'm definitely curious to see what happens in 10 years. I uh, recently had Amy Emerson, the CEO of uh, the MAPS Benefit Corporation or MAPS right. Benefit Org that is working on these phase three clinical trials. Uh, and, you know, it is amazing to hear about the experiences that people are having with this and also, you know, how far along they are to getting completely legitimatized or legitimized probably saying yeah. to buy the state by like all the organizations that need to uh, authorize it for people to use. And yes, I'd say, you know, I'm definitely curious to see what happens in 10 years, more so curious to see what it's going to look like in a hundred years. Wow. Well, there's, I mean, <laughs> there's a question if, if, if we're here and I think we will be, and I think it'll be a very peaceful and prosperous world. 
I'm an optimist when, when it comes to that. But in a hundred years, I, I, I think it'll be hard for us to recognize what's happening today. And I look, I look forward to talking to my grandchildren about that. Yeah, it's amazing. And uh, I have to ask you about your own personal experience, because when I first heard your uh, first heard about you, I heard about you on Joe Rogan. And you had mentioned that you had no experience with any psychedelics at that time. And I think for someone to go down this rabbit hole to the point that you've gone through and, and you know, wrote this amazing book, uh, I imagine there's some curiosity there. What's your thoughts on, uh, you know, sort of overall uh, diving into one of these experiences? Right. Now, I remain a psychedelic virgin. Um, but, you know, when I when I read the literature, when I I mean, that light bulb moment I had when I w- was reading about psilocybin and again and again, when I, I've talked to so many of these volunteers um, and other people, you know, outside the, the lab who've had these experiences un- under, you know, really controlled conditions with with proper intent and trying to maximize safety. Uh, you know, I hear the same kind of thing again and again. And e- even the researchers at Hopkins and NYU talk about this mystical experience. In fact, the depth of the mystical experience, at least with psilocybin, is determinative of the clinical outcome. I mean, so the, the closer you get to God, the, the, the better uh, you, know, you know the results for your depression, anxiety, et cetera. It's a really strange idea, but at the same time, it makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, with you know, after 13 years of Catholic school, uh, I'm used to reading about saints and visionaries. And when I, when I read the literature, coming out of these psychedelic experiments, it reminds me of the near-death literature. It reminds me of these out-of-body experiences that are recorded by mystics across time. Uh, And before the war on drugs, it's the kind of thing that really serious scholars were talking about. I mentioned Houston Smith, who called this whole area the best kept secret in history. He tried mescaline, he tried psilocybin, uh, famously as part of this uh, Marsh Chapel experiment. Uh, with Tim Leary and Walter Pankey in the 1960s. And he called it the greatest cosmic homecoming he'd ever experienced. And Aldous Huxley was talking about this, Alan Watts. I mean, so in, in the 60s, it, this was all envisioned a bit differently. And that, that's kind of the, the lens that, that I see it through. It was one of these old gentleman scholars. I mean, th- this wasn't that controversial. Uh, and so when I read them, I get, I get excited about it because what, what I see is mystical experience. Um, and uh, an, an experience that can be engineered pretty, uh, pretty easily um, and repeatedly, which is nothing less than some powerful technology. Certainly. And I, it's interesting how much it goes hand in hand with technology. Uh, with uh, Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind, covers a lot of those great stories that you, you mentioned there and uh, you know how much our perception of psychedelics in, in culture was so much different before the war on drugs, but it blows my mind to think about the people that were, you know, using it and how that, you know, sort of reemergence into our culture, uh, the kind of effect that it had, you have people like, you know, like Steve jobs attributing, you know, saying that LSD was such a significant part of his life, uh, and, you know, changed his trajectory forever. And then you see, you know, I'm talking to you on an Apple device and, you know, Apple iPhone, everything like that. It's sort of, it's like you can see this little spike in usage and then the world that we're living in today, you know, it's there, the technology of the time, Western civilization and psychedelics seem to continuously just cross paths and interweave uh, throughout history. It's kind of amazing. It's interesting. And that's why I call it the, the religion with no name. So e- even though the immortality key is referring to this death and rebirth experience that I think is, is, is central to that mystical experience. The religion with no name is the, the, the phrase I use for the, the, that serpentine path 
between drugs and humanity, which um, feasibly goes back tens of thousands of years, uh, if not hundreds of thousands sure. of years. And I start my book around 12,000 years ago, um, just artificially, but it, it was reading Graham Hancock's uh, Supernatural and this, this idea of, of the cave painting and the first shamans just recording what they would see in altered states of consciousness, a really provocative idea uh, by David Lewis Williams in the University of Witwatersrand uh, in South Africa. Uh, that really struck me, um, you know, that this, this doesn't seem to be a novel thing. And what the Greeks were doing, for example, or maybe the earliest Christians, I mean, you're talking about a tradition that is defiantly human. I mean, something that survives in the absence of the written word, right? I mean, how yes. is that? Over generations, for thousands of years, it's just... Uh, there's a religion with no name. I, I love that the way of framing it in the title of the book, the religion with no name. I think that nails it because uh, like I described earlier with all the different religions that sort of, you know, they sound there, there's so many similarities. There's so many uh, like uh, I just recently read Joseph Campbell's uh, you know, uh, why is the name slipping me? I literally have it on my table over here where he died, talks all about uh, the hero with a thousand faces. Uh, oh, wonderful. Uh, where, you know, he's talking all about religious history and how Buddhism and Christianity and all the different uh, religions have so much in common. And I think it really does come down to this core human experience. And across all languages, all cultures, all time, there's a similar thread of experience that's happening. And uh, I think definitely the the dog that didn't bark is the psychedelic sort of component to it that we're seeing the watered down version of in Christianity today, like you said, with the sacrament versus, uh, you know, what you're able to, you know, lightly unearth from the, uh, the ancient texts. It's pretty amazing. What is it like when you find sort of a new, you know, like I can imagine reading those ancient texts, probably feeling like Indiana Jones or, you know, like you're in the Da Vinci code or something trying to, you know, you're, you're stumbling upon some golden nugget. That's like, Oh, I might have an idea of how this interweaves with the rest of it. Like what, what is that experience like for you? That's, that's a great question. Uh, no, it's one of the first times I've, I've been asked that. I mean, no, because that, that's the thrill discovery, man. Yeah. It's I mean, crazy. When you, when you, when you hop on a plane and you're sitting in the archive of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, right, inside the Vatican, and you're looking at manuscripts from the 16th century, I mean, part of me is thinking, like, what the hell am I doing here? Honestly, like, you know, the, the custodian brings out a book that's this thick, you know, on, on the desk, maybe that, maybe that thick. And it's, it's the yellowed old paper bound in vellum. And there's this, you know, it's, it's written in archaic, not even like proper Italian, archaic Tuscan Italian from the 16th century in handwriting that looks like the notes my mother used to leave for me when I was 11 years old. And you're trying to, to you know, uh, make heads or tails of this stuff. Uh, and I went there because, you know, I was reading other scholarship by these uh, Italian scholars about what was in there. I'm looking for drugs. I'm looking for plant medicine. I'm looking for evidence that that women in particular, that witches, you know, that, that, that came under attack by the inquisitors for their knowledge of these powerful substances. And I'm trying to find something and, you know, one day there it is the you know the, this 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 one witch in 1590 uh is uh accused of mixing up ivy wine right the the same ivy that, that i said a few minutes ago uh made you crazy in fact Dioscorides says that uh, it uh, uh it deranges the senses now again we don't know what ivy this this woman was mixing up uh but 
uh, it's, it's raises the intriguing possibility that there were other sacraments out there, other forms of medicine and other, other uh, unguents and elixirs and potions. I mean, this stuff was real, you know, it was a witch mixing up a potion and that that's captured in this old manuscript. It's like, uh, you know, that happens once a year, if you're lucky, when you find a good hit like that and you, you know it immediately. I mean, I feel pretty good when I find what I'm looking for, like on Google, when it's pretty obscure search. Uh, you know, never mind uh, what I'm imagining, you know, with this a book very large, you know, in some, uh, you know, like cryptic sort of, uh, you know, uh, ancient building or something, turning these delicate pages, uh, trying to yeah. find something really stick out to you. I'm curious, what is your system? What, what's the method? What's the, how, you know, are you looking for keywords? Are you documenting this? Like, what is the system for sort of picking apart this ancient literature and trying to, you know, mm. draw the, the similarities? Like, how, how do you pull this stuff out of it in a meaningful way? That's a great question. In, in one line of the book, I say that Google is not going to help. Um, yes, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's it, at the beginning, sure. Like, like anything, it helps. Sure. Like anything, it, it'll it'll get you the the first couple steps on on a, on a thousand step journey. Uh, but after that, I mean, you know, a lot of the book is just what I say is rolling up your sleeves and going to libraries and archives and museums. I mean, you know, as as hyper connected as we are, you know, not everything is recorded the way it should be. Not everything is going to be on on a Google page. It's just it's it's that simple. Uh, so I made sure to align myself with some really respected scholars. And I, I was given access to the Harvard Center for Hellenic Studies um, in Washington, D.C., for example, and the other Harvard collections in Georgetown. Uh, and I went to the Wasson archives uh, in, uh, on the main campus at Harvard. I mean, at some point, you, you have to just take time off, which is not easy when you're a practicing attorney. And, and just sit in an archive for a couple days. And most of the time you don't find anything. And once in a while, you'll find something that even if it's not a smoking gun, it'll just be another link in the chain, which if you spend 12 years, it all eventually comes together. For, I imagine there's many people who will hear this and be intrigued and want to do a similar thing. Like I think that that sense of exploration is something that there, it's not easy to have anymore. There's not many things left to explore that or any mysteries that are that compelling out there. This is certainly one of them. Uh, how do you actually go about getting access to these different, you know, like how do you, how do you get to the point where they trust you to touch these books, to go through these archives. I think that's sort of like a, a huge gap in people's understanding of how you actually do this stuff is like, where's the trust come from? I have no good advice for that. Uh, it's, <laughs> part of that is, I mean, it's just, there, there's, it's, that's, it, that's hard to reverse engineer. Uh, you know, part of, I mean, it's just luck. I mean, part of it's luck. Part of it is just um, like patience and time. I mean, when I say 12 years, you know, it wasn't like every day. I mean, I was, I had a job. And I was raising two daughters and, you know, living as normal a life as anybody else with a family. Uh, but in my free time, you know, I, uh, I don't watch a lot of sports uh, and I don't have as many friends as I should. And so I'm, I'm, I'm there looking, I'm looking at books, right? And just uh, in late, late at night. I mean, uh, I, I think maybe Elon Musk behind you might, might sympathize. It's just, you know, it's, it's, it's in your quiet moments and just being obsessive about something. It takes a long, long time. And so you need like lots of elbow grease, lots of luck. And just if you spend thousands and thousands of hours doing one thing, you will uh, eventually have a payoff. Now, I'm not sure if that's three, five, 10 or 12 years, but eventually 
there's a payoff with tons of failure in between, tons, and, and, and nights and weekends when you're questioning what the hell are you doing with your time? It sounds like, you know, with all that time, energy, effort poured in, uh, you know, if you're talking to an expert and you're trying to convince them that you are also an expert, there's, you really can't, you know, there's sort of this way that you can't really, uh, it's hard to fool somebody if, uh, you know, you really put the energy and effort in, you know, where you, you can, you know, confidently say so much on a topic that's like, okay, this guy probably knows a thing or two. Uh, and we could trust him opening these archives, you know, going into this, uh, you know, touching some ancient book or something, you know, it's kind of like, you can't, uh, probably can't fool your way into that. Maybe you can, but there's probably a certain level. Of, yeah. There, yeah. There's a certain yeah. level of like, you definitely know what you're doing if you've put the energy in. Well, and I guess in my case, you know, uh, I had the, the, some of the language training, and that helps, but I mean, it, it doesn't matter. I mean, I think that more important than, than anything is just being honest. Like when I, um, when I write emails, I do, uh, you know, I'm, it, it starts with an email in most cases. And we live in a wonderful age when you can just send random yes. emails to people. Of course. When I, when I do that and I send, you know, uh, not all of them get answered, but the ones that, that, that do, I just, I try and be very honest about who I am and what I'm trying to do and the gaps in my expertise and saying, this is what I found to date. This is what I'm looking for. Uh, you know, can, can you help me? And, and if you can, wonderful. And thank you. And if you can't wonderful and thank you. Uh, but I try to be very honest and very sincere with people. That's great. I, I love that. And I have to say, I do a very similar thing. Uh, you know, even our connection today and being able to get contact with you is just all, you know, starts through an email. Hey, you know, I have a podcast. I'm very interested to speak with you. And here we are. Here we are, man. Yeah, absolutely. So what excites you most about this area of knowledge? You know, it seems like something that's coming more to the forefront uh, than ever before, uh, both in the realm of, I think, sort of this uh, ancient history, as well as the uh, psychedelic experience. Like a lot of this stuff is sort of bubbling up to the, to, you know, the top of, uh, top of mind in our culture today, more so than it has in previous decades. What, what excites you most, you know, going forward from here? Um, I mean, I like, I like it all. The, 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 mis the, the every time you find, you think you crack the mystery, there's, there's more mysteries. And so, you know, I wrote, I wrote this, this whole book with like 700 endnotes in it. And in, in many ways, it's just beginning. And I mean that, I mean, uh, I could have waited another couple of years to publish this, but I thought I had enough data, what I call proof of concept. Um, and so it's, it's not just looking into the ancient literature. A lot of what, a lot of what I do, by the way, is the archives, uh, but I mean, equal parts, there was the sciences. And so I, I'm always talking about the humanities and the sciences. And I spent a lot of time talking to these chemists and botanists about the data that was out there. And in the course of the book, I found two really compelling hits for the use of quote unquote, a psychedelic potion in antiquity, um, a psychedelic beer in, in Spain and, and psychedelic wine outside Pompeii. Uh, and it's some of the first data, I think, that's been widely reported. These were both found 20 years ago, uh, and they were recorded in, in these journals, and I think just went underreported. And so I think part of my book was um, excavating the excavator. So it wasn't you know, necessarily a new fresh dig. It was just showing that there is data out there uh, that is kind of overlooked. And, it, it fit, and, and this data about this spiked beer and spiked wine, it just fits very nicely into this hypothesis. And so based on that proof of concept, you know, now I'm having really exciting conversations with all these uh, institutions and academies about developing a proper protocol here and a methodology 
for going out into different excavation sites and testing more chalices and testing more cups and containers. Because the more you test, the more you're going to find that these ancient beverages are very different from what we think. And again, raising very well-founded questions about you know, the origins of the Greeks and what, what, what motivated them, whether at Eleusis or elsewhere, and the origins of the Paleo-Christians and what they thought about the Last Supper, right? So not, not that the Holy Grail itself was some spiked wine, but at the time it wasn't unusual. And so where do we look to find more hints and clues to just piece together this million piece jigsaw puzzle? Uh, you know, I could spend the rest of my life and only find another few pieces to this. That, that, that's the exciting part. Is this the kind of thing where, you know, more people being involved can help it? Like where, where is sort of the, the levers, where are the pieces that could, you know, with enough energy or effort uh, would dramatically change, you know, the world of research or understanding this sort of stuff? It's, I mean, certainly more funding. Uh, I mean, and you need, you need institutional support. Um, there, there is no center um, where, where this is done in, in a really professional way. I mean, so Andrew Coe at MIT, he, he's been doing this largely li like me, like my nights and weekends, largely he's been developing this repository of all this organic residue data uh, over the past many, many years. It's called the Open Archem Project. You can look it up. It's like this, this online repository for all the things that he's finding, Open Archem. Uh, and so that, that needs a home. I mean, it needs, it needs funding, it needs support, it needs to sit somewhere. It needs a, a multidisciplinary look from all these disciplines that we're talking about in humanities and sciences. Uh, and then, yeah, you, uh, at some point, you also just need um, people studying this, you know, a career path for these people. Uh, the, the two finds that I mentioned, the ancient spiked beer and the ancient spiked wine, um, again, it's 20 years ago from two archaeobotanists, archaeochemists who are no longer doing archaeobotany and archaeochemistry. It was like a bygone moment in their career. And I find it so funny that both of these spectacular finds were done by people who are no longer doing it because you can't make money. It's, it's hard to find a job. There's no career path for studying ancient intoxicants. I think we need to, to invest a little more in that. And so you, you need a lot more people and need to, to open up the academy uh, to make this accessible. Is there any is there any academy that's really uh, maybe the specialist or the you know central hub for any of this stuff? Uh, no, the the central hub is Andrew Coe uh, and and his team and his team and he spent years putting together a pretty crack team. Uh, but we're having conversations right now to see where we can incubate. Sure, like uh, so basically, we're there's one person heading this, Matthew Coe. You said. Oh, Andrew, 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 Coe. Andrew Coe is, is sort of uh, leading this initiative and in that you're working with, uh, you know, with others to bring this together and incubate it in one place. And where is that? Um, well, we don't know yet, uh, but we're talking to a few different institutions to find one place or maybe, or maybe several places. Maybe it's, it's a multi-nodal effort to, to incubate this and to, and to really invest in the next generation of people. Uh, what, what we need is not one Andrew Coe, but a hundred Andrew Coe's. And, and I think with, uh, with actual uh, diplomas and PhDs uh, being done in, in archaeochemistry and all the related humanities that, that exist around that, uh, I think that only then are we going to be able to put these pieces together in a real compelling way. And it seems like, you know, to have a compelling argument for why this is discipline is something that people should look into that there's much more to it than just figuring out what drugs the ancients were doing. There's, there's, you know, the impacts that it could have on the modern world. What, what do you think is a compelling case there as far as, you know, how this information could be applicable to the world that we live in today? 
correct. I mean, I think it's very relevant that this idea of lost knowledge, right? And lost wisdom. I mean, it sounds, it sounds hokey and made up, but I mentioned that we really don't know a lot about these ancient plants and herbs. You know, we've only identified 20%, we think. Uh, is it possible that through this organic residue analysis and these excavations, we dig up some unknown species? And is it possible that by resurrecting one of these species, we, uh, we can apply it um, in, you know, some, to some kind of new nutraceutical or bioceutical or pharmaceutical? Uh, I mean, there's the possibility that we really uh, discover a new natural product. I mean, a natural product that was once lost to us that is now back. I mean, there's very practical, potentially, application here uh, that, that can be scaled to, to quite a big degree. And then, I mean, just from a purely cultural perspective, uh, I, how much can we say definitively about the ancient Greeks or ancient Christians or the ancient Jews without knowing what was going on, without knowing what they were drinking and why, um, or what the holy anointing oil was or the temple incense? Uh, I mean, just earlier this year in May, a new paper was released um, by a team in Israel. They, they uh, were able to chemically discover uh, cannabis on this limestone altar dating from the 8th century BC. Wow. Um, uh, which is, it's big because it's the first archaeochemical data uh, to show the psychoactive use of drugs in the region. Uh, so we know where we can have a pretty good idea that, that cannabis was being burned as incense in the 8th century BC. Now, did that make its way into, into the proper temple? Did that make its way into early Christianity? I mean, it's, it's a legitimate hypothesis now. I mean, bef before, I think there was lots of speculation. Uh, but you know we're we're moving beyond just the literature, and just and just uh, the the written records, and we're moving into a real realm of science. It's incredible, and I, I'm so excited to see where this goes. You know, ar archaeochemistry is a new term even in my mind, but I feel like I'm going to continue to hear this, uh, you know, time and time again because I think it really is something that piques people's attention. I think it's something that sort of speaks to. Uh, you know, like finding uh, or uncovering mystery uh, is something that's so rare today. We feel like we have it all charted out and there's so much that's right there in front of us uh, in the ancient text that we haven't been able to figure out. And to me, uh, you know, the history of humanity is just, you know, infinitely uh, interesting, especially when we wonder how we ended up in this place. It seems like archaeochemistry has so much to do with it. There are genuine mysteries out there, is, is all I can say. We don't have it all wrapped up. And it's, it's, it's weird to think that, you know, 2,000 years after Jesus or 2,500 years after the founders of Western civilization that we still have questions, but we do. We have lots and lots of legitimate questions um, that, that haven't been answered, like how Jesus became the most famous human being who ever lived. I mean, we have lots of ideas about how that happened or, or how Christianity itself went from this illegal cult to transforming the Roman Empire in only 300 years, converting half of it, some 30 million people. I mean, how did that happen? We can't just credit Constantine with mm -hmm. this. I mean, the, the religion survived for 300 years as an illegal cult, right? With no churches, no basilicas, no Bible. It was just, you know, informal groups of people getting together to celebrate something that had incredible meaning. And that brought with it a sense of charity and goodwill and, and generosity. I mean, there was something magical happening there. And there was something magical happening at Eleusis. And I honestly believe that we're just scratching the surface. But in the next 10 years, we may get real answers to real mysteries with real application for today in medicine, how we organize society, the future of religion. Uh, I think an awful lot's at stake. 
Absolutely. I agree. And, you know, I appreciate the work that you're doing in this space to kind of bring it to the forefront with New York Times bestseller. Uh, you know, it's awesome to just get more people exposed to these ideas and to get it out there. What I'm curious, what, what's next for you? What, what are you looking for? Uh, or what are you, uh, you know, sort of focusing on next? So I say at the, at the end of the book that, you know, I would love nothing more than just to turn the page and take a break or do something else. But, uh, you know, every time I open the computer, there's more people who want to help to, to your point. Um, uh, there, uh, I get, I get, you know, dozens of emails from people who, ju who just want to help dozens, dozens a day, uh, which is, which is really exciting for me. And you know, my apologies for not being able to get back to everybody the way I want to. Uh, but there's, there's a lot of interest and support for this kind of thing. So I'm, I'm writing the second book and, uh, and making it a sequel into uh, j just the beginnings of the mysteries we scratch off in, in the first one. And there, there's a docu-series in the works that very much wants to capture this in, uh, in a resting way um, that, that, that we can send across the globe uh, and, and open up the audience. Um, and th these, these conversations at all these different institutions, you know, really to, to incubate this in a super serious, sober way, leveraging all the tools that academia has, which, which is great. Uh, and maybe combining it with the private sector too. I mean, there's just, I, I could spend, you know, the rest of my life doing this stuff. That's incredible. Will we wait another 10, 12 years for the second book to come together? Or do you anticipate <laughs> a, a little sooner? I think my publisher would kill me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it'll be a bit quicker excellent excellent well I, brian i really appreciate your time today and i also really appreciate just the again the work that you're doing i think this stuff is amazing i think it's super interesting and i think uh when we look back you know we talked earlier about you know 100 years in the future i think when we look back uh from that time we're going to see that this was really the uh you know, uncovering of something that's so critical to the human experience that it was a miracle that it was, uh, you know, sort of out of sight for this long. So I think it's, it's really amazing work. And I think it's super interesting. Love uh, sort of following along with your journey and look forward to continuing to see what you do. Cool. Stay tuned, man. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed that episode, please hit the subscribe button and follow us on Instagram and Twitter. You can find us on Twitter at KWC pod on Instagram at knowledge without college podcast. You can find me Patrick Butler at Patrick Butler zero zero on Instagram and Twitter. I encourage you to send over any feedback you have. If there's any guests you'd like to hear on the show, any topics you'd want to hear discussed. I want to know about it. I want to hear your feedback and opinions. So please help me make this a better experience for you. And I look forward to hearing from you. Have an excellent day and thanks for listening.